0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. Today on Raise the Line, our focus on rare diseases and conditions continues by welcoming another inspiring parent who is managing to not only care for their child, but to also advocate for other patients and their loved ones. I'm happy to welcome Luke Rosen, the founder and board chair of KIF1A.org, which is working to rapidly discover treatment for KIF-1A-associated neurological disorder, or CAND, a rare degenerative genetic disease, which his daughter Susanna was diagnosed with in 2016. There's currently no cure or treatment for this condition. In his professional life, Luke has spent the past five years in patient and community engagement at Ovid Therapeutics, a biotech company focusing on rare neurological disorders. He's also had a career as a writer and actor, appearing in shows such as Orange is the New Black and The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Akiva Zablocki, uh, who folks may remember was uh, on the podcast a couple of months ago talking about hyper IgM syndrome and his son, Idan, uh, for the introduction to Luke. So, Luke, thanks for taking the time to be with us today.
1: No, thank you, Shiv. It's such a pleasure. And and uh, echoing a big thanks and shout out to Akiva, who is uh, somebody who I, I love and is so close to my heart. Yeah.
0: Agreed. Uh, and that's one of the most gratifying parts about doing this focus on rare disorders or zebras is meeting parents and patients uh, like yourself and akiva who all seem to know each other and have supported each other over the years
1: absolutely i mean you, we really take pages out of each other's books or i certainly have for akiva and, and you know his his idan and his whole family are are like i said very close to our hearts so thanks thanks to akiva for making this introduction Awesome. So we're definitely going to go into your
0: and Susanna's story and Kif 1A. But the first thing, you know, uh, I know our audience would be interested in hearing more about your background, like your professional background, and then also this this whole acting and writing career. Can you tell us a bit about yourself first? And then we'll go into the other stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. For about, for about 20, 20 somewhat years, I was an actor and writer in New York, on, on fil- or in New York, and uh, primarily on film and television. And I, I wrote some plays and Um, yeah, it was a a really wonderful, uh, you know, people say it takes 10 years to really um, kind of establish establish yourself and, and make a make a a good living as an actor and and to be constantly working. Well, you know, it it, it did, it certainly did take that 10 years. But um, uh, after that, it was wonderful. And I, I, you know, met my wife, and we had uh, our oldest son, Nat, um, who's just incredible. And Nat used to, you know, come to set with me. And, hang out and was very, par- very much part of, uh, my life as an actor. Um, and Susanna was born Susanna, actually, and I'll send you the picture. Uh, Susanna came to work with me one day and was, uh, it was in this print ad with me for Xerox and, you know, I was holding her like a football and, you know, she was in, in my arms and all of a sudden, you know, they did the, the, the shot and, I was all over buses and magazines and you know airport uh, jumbo screens. So um, you know she was a, a member of the the union before she was one year old. <laughs> so Susanna is is uh, in her own right a very uh, wonderful wonderful actor. But um, I uh, yeah so I I was um acting was a big part of my life and when Susanna was born in 2016 and she started um you know, we started noticing that something was happening and something was seriously wrong with their health. I was in the middle of writing a play uh, called over the moon with trains. And we were in the middle of our workshop productions and uh, we're about to open. We were here in New York and we're about to open in in England and the UK. Um, And, you know, I was traveling a lot. I'd be back and forth from California to New York and, and, and England sometimes. And, you know, I, I, when I knew it was time to take a timeout from acting and I spoke with my agent and said that I was going to, you know, step back from a little bit. and and, uh, you know, we, we weren't quite sure what was going on. Uh, they were going to continue this, this play without me, which would ordinarily have been fine, but the play had had so much of Susanna and Nat and my family, uh, in it because it kind of, you know, transcended from what was happening in our, our real life into my work. So I kind of hold that one close to my heart, kept it in my pocket and, and, uh, haven't showed anybody that one, but um, yeah. So that uh, that moment when um, when I was kind of sitting and, and speaking with my wife, and and we realized that we needed to um, do something to to really help not just our kid, but you know, kids who are out there with this disease. Which at the time we didn't know any. Right, there's maybe twelve or fourteen that we could find, mostly in literature. When Susanna was diagnosed, so we set out to start a foundation and and um you know build a community and find more kids and and uh I realized that that was a far more um, impactful endeavor than you know doing beer commercials around Super Bowl time so um, that's when we uh we made the decision to do that and and the luckiest thing that happened was the first few families we met were um you know Kat Ashley who's the the, the president of the foundation is just, an incredible person and and uh had nonprofit experience and we were just very fortunate to I always think that leaders should surround themselves with people who are better than them. So we were very fortunate to to find people with skill sets that were uh, helpful in really jump starting the foundation and the preclinical work we were able to do. So that's how we started the foundation. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. So we're definitely gonna go into a couple of those threads here, but first before we dive into it, how is she doing?
1: Susanna's eight right now. Um, and she'll be nine in, uh, in, in May. And so she's doing, you know, she's, she's okay thing, you know, her, you know, it's, it's easy to say, you know, that default answer, Oh, everything's okay. But it's really not. She's, 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 uh, lost a lot of her vision. She's got, um, you know, hundreds of seizures at night and, uh, things, things she, she's having difficulty walking. So things, um, things are a little bit difficult at home but thank goodness for science because we really are on the brink of several things for um lots of you know hopefully the entire community and and you know we've been fortunate enough susanna has been fortunate enough to um uh just have started uh an experimental treatment um thanks to a, a really amazing organization called n Lorum. i'm not sure if you've heard of the n Lorum foundation but they're they're really just wonderful people who set out to, um, you know, leave no kid behind. Because it's such a rare condition that um, a lot of uh, traditional pharmaceutical companies, you know, there's there's no real uh, market size. So uh, this this organization is working with our physicians to uh, not just find a, you know, experimental treatment for one person, but but hopefully to scale it for the entire community. So that's something that I'm I'm excited about both on a personal level and as a community leader too.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, uh, there's some hope there, which is great. What, so, so for our audience that probably has not heard of Mm -hmm. canned, uh, KIF-1A, the gene itself, um, can you give us an overview of the condition and kind of what, what happens how common it is, et cetera?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's, um, it, we have, you know, the, the, like I said, the community really galvanized together, even though it was very small. So right now, you know, five years later, we have um, uh, approximately 400 families around the world that we've identified. And and we've done that by, um, you know, advocating for next generation uh, genomic sequencing and, and the the right genetic tests for the kids. Um, often the kids are misdiagnosed with cerebral palsy or uh, other, you know, severe diseases like uh, Rett syndrome or LGS is another disease. But so what one of the things we've done is really gone out there and, and, and tried to uh, make sure that the gene was recognized as, as, as a diagnosis um, because it does have to be uh, diagnosed um, with a molecular test, with a genetic test. You can't just kind of see a kid in the clinic and say, Oh, that kid's got KIF-1A. It's a very uh, complex and heterogeneous disease. So it's caused by, um, it's called the, the disease itself is caused by a mutation in the KIF1A gene, which is a gene that's a, if you think about it, it's a molecular motor protein that's vital for brain function. And uh, it's, a, it's a large gene. So our, our disease, as we find more people, is very heterogeneous. So there's not just one mutation. Um, like some other diseases that you might know of, but there's multiple different mutations around, uh, you know, across the gene and that heterogeneity um, isn't just in where the mutation is, but it, it causes um, different affect and then different presentation and, and different severity and progression of disease for uh, the individuals who have those different mutations or, uh, on the gene. Yeah. So it, um, you know, for, for some, uh, Unfortunately, it's uh, very tragic and, and it's a lethal disease before the age of five in some of those mutations. Um, other mutations, uh, like Susanna's are um, you know, progressive over time. And we see her, uh, you know, we, we, we do see the degeneration in, in her uh, with her disease. The disease really is characterized by um, there's cerebral atrophy. Uh, so b- the brain is atrophic uh, as time goes on. Uh, optic nerve atrophy, so that's where the vision loss comes in, um, and uh, spastic paraplegia, which is uh, basically lower limb uh, significant uh, spasticity. So lots of our kids are um, in in wheelchairs and these walkers, and um, uh, as they get older, it, it worsens. Um, and you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting uh, some of the constellation of, of uh, medical complexities that come come along with the disease. One of them is is uh, really hard. Uh, one one of the most difficult parts is there's um, a significant hereditary neuropathy, we call it, which is a, a, a neuropathic pain. And so, if you see the the nerves uh, are the nerves are the, in the body are the parts that are degenerating, right? So there's a a toxic protein that these um, mutations cause and uh, that it causes nerves and hands and feet to uh, slowly die or rapidly die, depending on where your mutation is. And so uh, that's very painful. A lot of times Susanna will wake up and say, my hands are burning on the inside in her own way. Um, Some of the kids are nonverbal. Susanna we're fortunate has speech. Um, uh, You have to, be well versed in speaking Susanna, like it's a different language, but we understand. So the the hereditary neuropathy is something that we're we're dealing with now and, and hoping to address. And I know a lot of people in our community are too that pain. So those are just a few of the, you know, the the mysteries and the and the uh, the medical complexities that uh, people with CAN deal with daily. Yeah, I mean the
0: heterogeneity makes it so difficult. Not only because it's such a rare condition, but also the presentation then is so diff- different when hard to get the, one of the big challenges of all the rare disease community is getting big enough numbers for clinical trials and, you know, right. to, to understand it. So tell us about, you know, kif1a.org, I know you told us, started telling us about the evolution of it, but uh, what are some of the top priorities you have now uh,
1: and, and what are you most proud of that, that it's done? That's uh, a great question. And uh, First and foremost, the thing that I'm most proud of is uh, that the organization has galvanized such a strong community, right? So everybody's very active in the community. Um, there's not one family I know that doesn't play a significant role in what we do. Um, and uh, you know, between just dialogue and support uh, all the way through our mission, which is to really drive science to a therapeutic for for families. Um, and so that's, that's, that's pretty incredible that everyone plays a, a, a real part and, you know, something else that I'm really proud of, um, and thankful for is our collaboration, um, at Columbia, uh, which is, which is a, a, a commonality that Akiva Zablocki and I have, uh, is a connection to Columbia, but, um, we, you know, we being in New York, uh, our family, uh, you know, ended up in Columbia. That's where our kids are born. That's where, you know, so. like, broke my arm on a bike I'd go to that ER this is around the corner right so we uh, landed in uh, Dr. Wendy Chung's office who's the chief of genetics at Columbia Um, so we just happened to be fortunate enough to uh, to be in a place where there was somebody who could interpret the you know the the results of the diagnosis and also uh, is a incredible researcher and physician so when we uh, started the foundation it was it was quite obvious that to centralize all of our resources and all of the families around um, this preclinical program at Columbia was the right thing to do. So right now we have something called the koala study, which is um, uh, every good study needs a good acronym, right? So there's, it's called Kif one a outcome measures, assessments, longitudinal and endpoints. So koala. (laughs) And what that is, is, you know, there's so in in rare disease, as you know, there's uh, one of the major problems is that the outcome measures and endpoints that, um, you know, regulators and, and, and other people use are, are really antiquated, right? I mean, they've been along for, they've been around for far longer than our disease has. So it's hard to find measures, and tools to measure that are standardized that are appropriate for our disease, you know, and by that, I really mean that, you know, Susanna can sometimes have hundreds of seizures at night. And if an endpoint is a, you know, 50% reduction in seizure, well, that's great. But two fewer seizures would be huge for us, you know, and, um, you know, uh, it's just 10 more steps would be great, not getting up and running a marathon and, and things like that. So uh, the the study aims to really uh, fly, we, we fly all of the, uh, or travel all the all the families, both international and domestic to our Center of Excellence at Columbia, and uh, all the families uh, have clinic visits, answer certain survey questions, and um, go through uh, assessments for the various domains that are are uh, relevant in our disease, so the, the hope there is that we'll have a real understanding of the disease, but also uh, have an, have a way to um, to measure change and to understand what really matters for every family um, across the heterogeneous uh, disease that we have.
0: That's a that's a really exciting and hopefully a good model for diseases like. Canned that uh, have such heterogeneity. I mean, it reminds me of something John Crowley, who I'm sure you know, um, told me on the podcast, as well about the endpoints. We're talking about his his daughter Megan and his other mm-hmm. son who have a Pompeii disease. Where truly the endpoint, you know, quality of life improves significantly for these family for these patients and their family members. If you can just get, you know, as you said, instead of 100 seizures at night, just 98, right? Just like yeah. things. You know, and obviously getting to statistical significance is clearly important if we're going to be able to approve, find, and approve drugs or treatments for these conditions. However, the lived experience is is really important for these families. Um, So that's a really interesting study. I'm glad to hear.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, small change is epic for rare disease families. Uh, You know, incremental change even means a lot. And, I did listen to, uh, John Crowley is somebody who's been a guide and a mentor for, for me since I was, you know, first, uh, Susanna was first diagnosed and, and his daughter, Megan is a great inspiration and, and leader for, uh, for young girls like Susanna. That's awesome. Yeah. He's great, great person, great family. And
0: again, that's one reason we love, we love covering this because, uh, so many heroic and inspirational stories. And so going into, um, kind of key priorities as well so koala is a really interesting study to be aware of um i think there's also a mouse model and trying to get cell lines to test uh potential therapies do you want to talk a bit about that
1: yeah yeah sure and that's another huge you know we, we really try as a foundation we have a wonderful um one of our one of the best moves we made was with the help of the Chan Zuckerberg initiative uh we were able to resource a chief science officer right so i can barely get through what Canned is without you know crying or rambling about some genomic you know i was doing Chekhov in East Village theaters, not you know, it's not not at the lab learning science. So, um, you know, we were we were able to hire a chief science officer who was one of a handful of people in the world really uh, researching and working um, on the disease, and that that's Dominique. So, one of the things that we um, and I learned this from also, uh, and we can get there if you want, um, going into uh, biotech and learning about about biotech is you know you have to work non sequentially right there's no you you can't waste time by crossing something off the list then going to the next then going to the next we kind of try to take all these shots on goal at the same time and so along with the koala study uh we're also certainly working on finding the right animal models but most importantly um getting cell lines from all the families you know and so we work really really closely and so do our our you know uh partners at columbia work really really closely with uh cat lutz and the people at the jackson laboratory who are just also wonderful people and and the jackson laboratory is another non-profit but uh with incredible scientists who um really work on that is developing disease models and not just mice but isogenic cell lines and, and other things like that so uh with the folks at Jax, we were able to identify a mouse model that you know, mirrored some, mirrored the lower limb spasticity of, uh, the disease, which was really critical in, in, uh, you know, making, making progress, uh, and, and understanding and being able to, um, you know, test therapeutics, uh, on, on that animal model. But, you know, um, we're not finding treatments or aiming to find treatments for mice. So, uh, you know the the it was really important for all of our families to uh, be educated and and that's another great thing about um, our foundation and Dominique who's our, our CSO is the focus on scientific communications and what you do right SciComs is is huge so we we really did put together um uh, a, a, an initiative to make sure that all the families knew how important it was to give blood because um, you know not just for analysis but to create human derived cell lines and with the heterogeneity of our disease we need not just you know one or two people to uh give blood to make cell lines but we, you know we needed to um really get as much uh, or as many of our families to to uh uh give those samples so we could make cell lines and be able to mirror the disease you know in a dish as they say but um we would you know, we do it in a very innovative, I think, way, a very practical way, right? Is I, th- I think that innovation these days is often just com- being completely practical and sitting down and having coffee with somebody instead of developing an app. Maybe I don't know, but um, uh, you know, so we have big conferences, family and scientific conferences. Um, our, our last one was in in person. Our last in person one was 2019. We've done virtual since then, but um, our incredible president who I mentioned, Kat Ashley, uh, you know, she really drives those and, and there's a great convergence of community and science. So at the, at the, at the conference, you know, we had a lot of people presenting, we had a lot of uh, community support events and activities, and we had a phlebotomist, um, you know, taking blood from all the families. So it's, um, it's constantly a a community and support driven Foundation with very much a scientific element to it. And I think without both of those, um, you can't get to, to a treatment fast enough. So hopefully we're on the right path and we're, we're, we're doing uh, lots of different things at the same time from, uh, you know, investigating genetic based therapies to screening small molecules to, you know, really, uh, really digging in and understanding what matters most to our, our communities.
0: Totally. That makes perfect sense. And I'm glad, you know, I like the analogy of doing things in parallel and taking multiple shots on goal. Plus, going back to the basics and so much of this is the awareness and education that obviously we're built on. And trying to get families to know why, you know, why they need to donate blood and make it super easy, reducing friction. So when they're at the conference. I was wondering if you were gonna say maybe to, to get into the, the line for, for dinner, uh, you know, pizza or cookies or whatever, you'd have to donate blood to get there, which would be a I think a perfectly
1: reasonable thing to do. So So we thought of that. <laughs> we we actually thought of when you check in to get your badge. <laughs> you know you have to have the phlebotomist will be the person who's giving out the batch. Totally. but um we, we we decided that education was a better route than um you know uh, forced, forced blood drop. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: i'm also glad you mentioned chen zuckerberg so we actually have tanya uh coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks and
1: she is t- tanya tanya has changed and sorry to cut you off but i just have to say she's really she has she is very very um in many ways responsible for, uh, what success, uh, if you know, we're, we're where we are right now as an organization, Tanya is a, an incredible guide for us. And also, um, is incredible at, at putting people together to drive things forward faster. So Tanya is, uh, is one of our champions and I, you know, I'm forever thankful to Tanya. So I can't wait to, to hear that one. She's amazing. Totally. Yeah. They, and she has a great
0: team. We met Heidi Bjornson Pinnell uh, who herself has two children with a rare disease. Yeah. Um, and then I was introduced to Tanya by David Fagenbaum um, cause both mm-hmm. Tanya and I are on his every cure, um, advisory group. So great, again, great people. I'm glad to hear that CZI has been backing KIF1A.org.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and talk about, you know, taking pages out of people's book is, you know, David is a, also a friend of mine and he, um, you know, people say, and I think this is unique for rare disease where where uh, other diseases people are, you know, take great ownership of, of what they do. But, you know, certainly kif1a.org and certainly the people that you just mentioned, you know, when somebody asks how to do things, it's kind of like, here, look at our website, take it, you know, insert gene here, you know, take whatever we've done as a, a community uh, and, and try to apply it to your disease if there's ever uh you know if there's ever a way to help and and that's the case with David and Tanya is that you know um David obviously you know has has worked relentlessly to to make things happen faster and and so many ways David is as you know so not just transparent but sharing and loving it says here take if this is the model that works use it (laughs) you know so um we're forever grateful for community members and leaders like those
0: absolutely and and again where wherever stakeholders can uh, can mm-hmm. uh, get you mul- multiple stakeholders involved i mean obviously the parents and then you know the way you're speaking about kif1a you know if if anybody tuned into this without uh, knowing your background would think you're a researcher yourself because you know so much about the condition you've had to you've had to and so i'm curious on this point um you know since our audience primarily comprises current and future healthcare professionals as well as researchers now, what advice would you give them about uh, you know, being helpful? Like, think about some of your best and maybe worst experiences of the healthcare system uh, in regards to KIF-1A and, and how, how you as a rare disease family were dealt with. What's some advice you'd like to give our audience about that?
1: Yeah, that, oh, what a question. Um, I think that you know, advice really is to, is to spend time, to sit down and, and to, to really spend time and to not have a fractured community right and so if uh, there are many times where you know there's a, a community or a foundation that ends up getting fractured for whatever reason some some element goes one way the other goes the other way and all of a sudden you ha- you know you have uh the strength of one community uh turns into uh you know a, a, a bunch of small initiatives that aren't nearly as strong as as uh, one st- community who ha- has uh you know done everything they can to galvanize together but um i, I think advice really is to sit down and listen and I, you know that listening doesn't happen nearly enough um we're very fortunate to have uh physicians who um who listen and who observe and who love our kids who are their extended family members really right i mean our our physicians are constantly checking in and, and are very honest and saying, you know, look, we don't know much about this condition. The only way we're going to learn about it is to listen and to, um, you know, learn what your routine is like. And so it's, uh, you know, it takes a community to want to be able to share their stories, which is, you know, tremendously difficult. It's really hard to to write about it, to talk about it. It's just, you know, it's, it's exhausting and often excruciating to relive it. Um, and uh, I think that when healthcare providers, when, you know, industry members, when people give the community a platform to tell their story, just like you're doing and, and give the community a, a, a way to articulate things that the, person looking in from the outside might not necessarily know or understand, know that, you know, and it gets back to those, those measures, right. Is that I want people to know that if there's some way to get my daughter five or 10 more steps, that maybe she'll be able to make it to the bathroom without, you know, having to completely lose the routine of our day that gets my son anxious and gets him late to school. And there's so many different elements and siblings are remarkable, right? I mean, you know, we talk about when people say, can you tell us about um, the seizures that Susanna has? You know, sure. I can tell you about, you know, the the seizures she has and how my wife and I haven't slept in the same bed in years because one of us has to sleep with her. And, but you know, the, the most The thing that I can tell you when I think about uh, when a a, a clinician or anybody asks me about Susanna's seizures, I can tell you about the time when, um, the the one time where I wasn't sleeping with her and and Sally was um, out of the house and Nat, Sally's or Nat, Susanna's brother said, um, let's have a slumber party. And so the kids, you know, got into bed and and the three of us had this incredible, you know, any parent would love that moment where the kids fall asleep, watching a movie on your shoulders, <laughs> you know, it's, it was great. And um, long story short, I kind of snuck out of bed to get ready for the day. You know, my wife wasn't there. who's was really our anchor. Um, but I decided to, you know, get out of bed to start the day. And then um, we had a scream from our son said, you know, dad, get in here. Something's going on with Susanna. And. And she had had a seizure and and vomited and was aspirating. And and the reason that she didn't die because of one of these seizures that unfortunately a lot of our community members do uh, succumb to was because her brother was there to, to save the day and to help, you know? And, and I think that that knowledge that siblings go through, uh, that is something that needs to be talked about when somebody says, tell us about your child's epilepsy. You know, it's more than just a quick question. It's a, it's, a, it's a, a huge effect on not just the whole family, but friends and everything. So I, I guess that's a way of saying that my, um, my advice would be to to really ask questions, to really listen, to really spend the time and to be open. Uh, I think those are the best scientists and physicians are people who are, are, um, are constantly learning, you know. Certainly
0: that's I think that's great advice and really nuanced that we've done several of these interviews, and no one shared that that particular item, and so that's a really good good thing yeah. to consider like no one is just a patient, they're obviously right. a person, and no one is just a person in a vacuum they are a person in a family unit in a community um and so being able to consider those other aspects that make them who they are is critical
1: uh, you know they're absolutely so that's so well said I, And I think there's, you know, on the the research and science end, I don't know if I could eliminate, uh, there are a lot of words in our lexicon that I think are, you know, way off. But when people say basic science, I'm like, like, hold on, there's nothing basic about (laughs) what these scientists are doing for us because without that initial understanding of the gene or of, of the disease, then there's nothing. So I, uh, I, I think that, you know, engaging every single level of, of um, scientist, researcher and clinician is, is huge. I mean, you know, as a foundation, everyone thinks about um, raising money and, and uh, being able to resource things. Well, I think that if you create a clinical trial ready ecosystem or create something where you can go to a company or to a, a person or a scientist or a lab or a group and say, we'll be your proof of concept you know, because we're so ready. We have a clinical, we have a center of excellence that could be a clinical trial site right away. We can rapidly enroll. We can do all of these things that, you know, new technology and clinical trials need. And so if we can go and say, you know, we'll be your proof of concept. I, I think that that's currency that, that is just as important as, you know, raising a million dollars in a lemonade stand.
0: Totally. Totally. I mean, I agree. And the money, the money is obviously what funds a lot of this and gets people like the you're Dominic, the chief scientific officer, because they obviously have to have
1: mm-hmm. a
0: living and you need people to do that. But there's so many other things I know that the community that we can all do to reduce the friction. From our part of osmosis, largely what we're trying to do is motivate a lot of our current and future healthcare professionals to pay attention to these disorders and maybe dedicate their uh, clinical careers to them because they could be the, you know, uh, like that genetic count, uh, the head of genetics you mentioned at Columbia, that person who is a life lifeline for many uh, patients like uh, and families like yourself. One of the reasons we're excited about joining Elsevier is that they bring all the research experience. So we have over twenty five hundred journals at Elsevier, and even our CEO Kumsel, directly connected me with two patients. You may know them, Brett Copelan and Philippe Pactor, p- parents, family members, um, and have published research not only from researchers, but patients, patient perspectives. And that's something Tanya and I've spoken about is maybe a journal of rare disorders or being able to open access, like Elsevier's done, so many of the rare disease articles. And that, that actually is a long intro to a question I have for you is what more could, could we be doing as osmosis or Elsevier or just the research slash clinical community for KIF-1A specifically, and then also uh, the rare disease community in general that, that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, and that's a that's a hugely important question, right? I think, um, and and Tanya is is uh, really is is somebody who's got a skill set to um, tap into when it comes to policy and to really driving policy. And I think that um, you know every bit of science needs to be, you know, um, promptly shared in an appropriate way, right? Um, intellectual property needs to exist to share things appropriately, not to monopolize things, right? And so I think that um, in giving access to everyone has the right to learn about their disease and everybody has the right to learn about therapeutics that are in development for their disease. So, you know, when there are these, I have this kind of personal policy that I, I never speak at a conference that doesn't allow patients or caregivers or advocates in for free right i mean a lot of these conferences cost thousands of dollars (laughs) to be in right and um you know it's it's creating citizen scientists and enabling families to take part in the uh, process and integrate that into the process this is the only way we're going to get there faster right and and you know czi has this um wonderful i love it and it's uh it's kind of become a mantra of ours too because of CZI is, uh, you know, science is better together, right? Well, well, it really is. And so I think that um, your point about having patients be and, and caregivers and be co-authoring papers is really important, right? Is you have to have that, um, that convergence of, of science and, and experience. And so many of us are, so many parents are, you know, scientifically savvy and can can inform elements of disease that, you know, don't show up in your uh, traditional peer-reviewed journals, right? But uh, on the other hand, I think when people in the scientific community um, do come to, uh, you know, a meeting or do come to an event or do come to a, a place where they're talking about rare disease, you know, they need to do their homework. And that homework, is yes, learning and reading, uh, you know your diligence, right? You go and you you have all of the major publications from every big journal, from you know neurology to the New England uh, you, you know, to the New England journal, Medical Journal, and you've read them all because they're these you know um, these pillars uh, and and these um, you know incredible publications that come from well-funded studies but you know what There are blog posts there are platforms there are stories that patients and families have written you know my friend mike porath started a, a, a platform called the mighty and it's it's something that gives people an opportunity to sh- write and share stories and those stories are just as important as the peer-reviewed journals and i think that when you know the scientific community really digs in and and your homework isn't just to read the latest uh, peer-reviewed journal, but also to read We'll time too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a combination of that type of uh, those data sets. I think that, that ultimately will help us better understand, especially heterogeneous diseases and then find those cures and
1: therapies for them. And also is to enable families to, to measure things at home in a way that's going to be accurate, right. Is, uh, and it's going to be helpful, right. You know, t- two years ago, we started, Collecting in a very organized way, Susanna's, um, you know, seizures and her uh, her falls, right? And those are two endpoints that have now become uh, very important in in uh, our endeavor for therapeutics. So, you know, the scientific community teaching and educating. We've been really lucky to have people like Tanya, like Wendy Chung, like you know. Myriad people like you, you know, educate us and enable us to uh, create the tools that are really needed, right? So we can go to regulators and say, "Look, here's a very, you know, not just validated but standardized um, uh, diary and and collection of events that might be able to um, to help move things forward." So just the, you know, educators or people with, with really wonderful skill sets when they share their skill sets and educate families and patients. It's, it's, um, it's so critical. I can't tell you, I, I say this a lot, so forgive me for repeating myself, but when Susanna was first diagnosed and I did this, you know, we as everyone does a huge, you know, dive into publications and trying to read things that are way above my head. And, you know, if somebody had just told me, that the word variant and mutation meant the same thing would have saved me hours and hours and hours. And I think it's that you know education that people are uh, you know we're fortunate enough to have people give to us. but I think that you know if you have a big scientific skill set or policy skill set, you, you know that obligation or that passion to share it with people who might not is is something that you know'll we'll be forever thankful for and and is great. that's
0: that's a very helpful a specific example and uh, again, something we strive to do at Osmosis is reduce jargon so that the yeah. same video we make on a rare disease, and my hope is this coming year we'll make one on, on canned, um, is is something that um, a patient will understand, a family member will understand, a researcher will get benefit from, a clinician. So you know, bringing everyone to the same sort of shared vocabulary while not losing the nuance or the uh, you know the actual. Um, science around it would be important.
1: Yeah. When I listen to your work and when I see what you guys have done, what it's it's right in the wheelhouse of what needs to happen. And it's it's making the science colloquial. Right. Yeah. Thank you. No, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you.
0: I know we're taking you 15 minutes over what I promised in the schedule. And so I did want to kind of end by asking, what other things do you want to share with our audience with uh, that we haven't gotten to yet?
1: Yeah, it's just a, a, a passion and... The commitment, it's, the question and the thing that is really the the litmus test is, is is whether or not you can maintain things and whether or not things have a lasting ability. So we're five years into our foundation and we're going to learn a lot about ourselves if we can be 10 years into our foundation, right? And similarly in, in biotech, if somebody has got a preclinical program, if that preclinical program... Is around until it becomes a clinical program and a therapeutic. <laughs> you know, I think that um, you know being able to last and being able to uh, maintain a strong community of people who are dedicated. I mean, we have people in our community who you know have lost kids and who are who who don't. You know, their their children have died tragically and. You know, live on in science because they've donated their brain and their spine. And those parents are still critical members of our community and active members of our community. And if you, there's nothing more uh, evident about a community that's going to be lasting than if you have those tragic circumstances, but people are still community leaders. And I think that. You know, uh, every stakeholder can do everything they can to enable a community to last and to, to, to just be around and to be relevant for however long, whether or not you have a therapeutic or whether or not you, you know, you don't, if there's a community of anybody, if it's patients, physicians, caregivers, anybody, if there's any community that could last and, 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 you know, weather the storm, but come out. Uh, yeah. Together, still, I think that's that's huge. So anybody who can enable a community to uh, last and and the test of time is is a a really valuable stakeholder to all of our communities. So it's lasting. It's just showing up. That's awesome.
0: I agree. That's uh, that's really great advice to end on, and hopefully something other other patient uh, organizations can emulate, like Kif One A has done a great job with. So. Luke, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, sharing your and Susanna and your family's stories. Uh, it's really heartwarming, and you know we're hoping for the best outcome for for her and your family specifically, and then obviously your commitment to the overall community.
1: Wow, thank you, Shiv, and thanks for giving me the uh, opportunity to be here and for elevating our whole community. It, it means a lot to us, so thank you.
0: Absolutely. And with that, our uh, thank you to our audience for listening to today's show. I'm Shiv Ulani, and remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our collective health care system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.